let's go back in history as quick as possible, maybe to the, the spring of 1944, when Raoul Wallenberg was 31 years old and honestly a rather bored young man. His career had not turned out in the way he had wished. He was still unmarried and he lived in a small apartment with a kitchenette in downtown Stockholm. For the past three years, Wallenberg had worked in the food industry as the foreign director of a small Swedish-Hungarian import-export firm. 1944 had begun with one difficulty after the other for this business. That was called Mellaneropiska Handelsaktiebolaget in Swedish. <laughs> it sounds funny? <laughs> Several, I will have you uh, quote that or repeat that when you leave this room. <laughs> Several hundred kilos of rotten poultry, Hungarian poultry, had recently had to be thrown away. And the previously so lucrative horse export seemed to have stagnated entirely. Not even an unexpected delivery of Spanish oranges could lighten the atmosphere in the office of Mellaneuropeiska Handelsaktiebolaget at <laughs> Strandvägen 7A in Stockholm. The frustrated Raoul Wallenberg had been looking around for something different for a while now. He was waiting impatiently for his father's cousins, bank directors Jakob and Marcus Wallenberg, to make him a job offer if not a position in the family bank, Stockholm's Enskilda Bank, then maybe something in one of the many industries that the wealthy banking family owned and operated. Raoul's own father had died a few months before he was born. With each generation, Raoul's branch of the Wallenberg family had gotten further and further away from the well-known and prosperous Wallenberg business empire one of the largest in Sweden at that time, but still is today. The son of a cousin wasn't exactly the most important things in the minds of the wealthy bank directors. Time and again, his successful distant relatives had given him false hope of a new position. But in the beginning of 1944, Raoul had waited almost seven years for something more substantial, a position where he would be able to use more of the broad competence that he had acquired over the years. For Raoul Wallenberg, the grand assignment would indeed soon arrive, but not from Jakob and Marcus Wallenberg, and not at all in the manner that he had imagined. 1944 meant the fifth year of war, and the prevailing feeling in Europe was that the German defeat was just around the corner. At this point, hardly anyone who followed the news could be unaware of the huge crime against humanity taking place in the middle of Europe. As early as in December 1942, the Allied countries presented a joint declaration against Nazi Germany's ongoing extermination of the European Jews. The protest was delivered in a speech by the British Foreign Minister Anthony Eden. Eden showed that he already knew enough details to describe the Nazi slaughterhouses. He could tell the world how ghettos were emptied and how several hundreds of thousands of innocent men and women were sent to their death. I do repeat that this joint declaration was presented in December 1942. 
Unfortunately, it was nothing but words. The following day, the extermination went on and on, and as historian David Wyman writes in his book, The Abandonment of the Jews, American President Roosevelt waited 14 long months before he finally agreed to a limited rescue efforts for the threatened European Jews. For the Allied, the most important thing was winning the war. Thus, no resources could be set aside for humanitarian rescue missions. During the entire war, only 21,000 European refugees were allowed to enter the United States. And in the years before World War II, Raoul Wallenberg's Sweden had also been rather hardline, closing the borders to Jewish refugees rather than saving them. But Raoul Wallenberg himself, he had been spending the first half of the 1930s abroad. He was only 19 years old when his grandfather sent him to United States to get a degree from an American university and to hopefully acquire a little of the Amer American mentality. Or in his grandfather Gustav's words, learn, quote, how to be a well-organized fighter, aware that one must keep going under all circumstances, end of quote. The most important thing for Raoul was simply to be in America. What he studied didn't really matter. Raoul Wallenberg had great artistic talent and had been interested in architecture since he was a little boy. Someone suggested a good architecture school connected with Columbia University in New York. But Raoul ended up at the College of Architecture at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Why? The explanation is quite simple and touching. Because Gustav, grandfather Gustav, was so afraid that the wild social life among youth would destroy his master plan for Raoul. And he had suddenly realized that both the East and the West Coast of the United States were as bad as Stockholm in that respect. <laughs> so he searched the map with a fine tooth comb for a very safe and conservative American university in the Midwest, where this would not be the case. At first, Raoul found Ann Arbor boring, too European. But he ended up loving it. And he started to feel like an American. It helped that he had a natural talent for languages. Just imagine a 19-year-old Swede coming to the United States and the very first semester there, snagging the position as the best student in English composition in his class. <laughs> it was an architecture class. His friends called him Rudy and quickly forgot that he was a Swede. He did well in his studies, at least when it came to architecture and art. The art professor at the College of Architecture considered him the most gifted student he had encountered during his entire time teaching and asked him if he would consider a career as an artist. In the end, Raoul Wallenberg really loved the United States and the people living there. As he wrote to his grandfather, the nice thing about America is that people are not jealous and that they are not petty. Just think how much energy we waste at home, doubting everyone and everything. And think of all the discomfort we create for ourselves 
and for others by being pessimists by nature instead of optimists. A decade later, he would bring that American, new American optimism with him to Budapest. <coughs> he also visited San Francisco for one or two weeks, so I have to show you this, this letter. Unfortunately, here he discovered that his love, love for the American people, unfortunately, was not mutual. He was met with rather negative prejudices. Quote in a, from a letter, it is very sad, from this very letter, actually, it is very sad, but there is no mistaking. Over here, Swedes are known for only two things, honesty and stupidity, end of quote. <laughs> but the idea with this US adventure was not for Raoul to become an architect by profession. The goal for him had always been a life in business. And after Raoul graduated from Ann Arbor, his grandfather arranged for him to spend another year abroad as a business trainee. He wanted Raoul to learn business basics, and therefore, by reasons that I don't have time to explain here, sent him first to South Africa for half a year, and then for nearly as long time to British Palestine. So when Raoul Wallenberg Finally, after five years, returned to his home country in 1936. He was met with the growing Swedish xenophobia and anti-Semitism. <coughs> For instance, in the year before the war, Sweden and Switzerland begged Germany to stamp a J in, in the passport of German Jews so the border police could stop Jews from entering these countries. In Sweden, there had also previously been repeated protests from various Swedish professionals or professional organizations against allowing German Jewish businessmen and doctors into Sweden. For competitive reasons, it was said, said. But that was, of course, not the whole truth. And back in his pre-war Sweden, Raoul Wallemey also soon met with the second private tragedy in his life, his grandfather, who had promised to introduce him into high, the higher circles of Swedish business life, died just a few months after Raoul Wallenberg's return. So Raoul now had to struggle on his own, starting one failed company after the other, until he finally, in 1941, ended up with the first permanent position in his life, working at this food import-export business <laughs> in its small office on the fashionable address Strandwagen 7A in Stockholm. So who was he then? The Raoul Wallenberg that later on in the summer of 1944 in haste left his safe home in neutral Sweden with a brand new diplomatic passport to lead a rescue mission for the Budapest Jews. It has been seven years since I started my research for this book about his life and destiny. And I can honestly tell you that the person Raoul Wallenberg still keeps fascinating me, partly because of all the knots, all those things that people claim he was, but he indeed was not. Raoul Wallenberg was not a career diplomat. When he left for Budapest, he actually had no diplomatic experience at all. He was an architect, as I have explained to you, who for various reasons 
had chosen to go into business. He was not the heir of a vast fortune, nor the next generation to come in the Wallenberg business empire. Those who knew him did not see an aspiring hero, nor any, an especially courageous man, rather the opposite, and Raoul Wallenberg himself Throughout the known parts of his life, he always called himself a coward. Raoul Wallenberg was not a well-known person in Sweden before he left. He was hardly mentioned at all in Swedish newspapers, not before uh, the, the big drama surrounding his disappearance. He was, in private, vehemently anti-Nazi, but he never publicly raised his voice in this issue in the debate during the war in Sweden because that was simply not his way. The fatherless Raoul Wallenberg had always obeyed his late grandfather, whose mantra was, never jeopardize business opportunities by expressing your personal political views. <laughs> Last but not least, after five years abroad, Raoul Wallenberg was not especially Swedish in his manners. He is said to have had an international flair and rather saw himself as a citizen of the world. And in 1936, as I briefly mentioned before, Raoul Wallenberg lived for several months in Haifa, Palestine, in a co colony of German Jews who had fled Nazi persecutions. That gave him an insight into the severe conditions for the Jews in Nazi Germany, an insight that indeed was rare in Sweden in the middle of the 30s. And since then, he was not, as most Swedes in that period, naturally inclined to view the persecuted U European Jews with an us versus them perspective. He automatically saw the us, not from sentimentality, more as a natural reflex. He had also done some research and learned that he had a microscopical part Jewish ancestry himself, one sixteenth which he often and with pride exaggerated, I'm a half, a quarter, an eighth Jew, in conversation with friends. And it is worth noting that the diverse businesses that Raoul Wallenberg had been involved with since he came back to Sweden had had one thing in common, which indeed made him unusual. All his business companions had been Jewish refugees. Fortunately, the world climate changed, and both the United States and Sweden had their political U-turns when it came to the attitudes towards the threatened European Jews. Sweden was first out, and the Swedish turn can be dated to the end of 1942, that is more or less at the, same, at the time for the Allied countries' joint protest declaration. And the change came as a result of the horrifying news that the Germans had deported, had deported some 500 Jews from neighboring Norway. Less than a year later, when nearly 8,000 Jews from neighboring Denmark were threatened by deportation, the Swedish borders were declared open to any Jewish refugee who could get there. An American Jewish organization even wrote a letter of gratitude to the Swedish Prime Minister, quote, 
during the years of untold suffering of Jews under the Nazis, this is the first time that a government officially issued a statement announcing readiness to grant asylum to tortured Jews of a neighboring country. End of quote. United States chose to wait until the last minute. But finally, in January 1944, the American gov government could no longer ignore the political pressure. And a new authority, the War Refugee Board, was founded with the mission to save Jews and other victims of the Nazis in Europe. This new American initiative would soon involve a 31-year-old food importer employed by a Swedish-Hungarian company with an office at the fancy address Strandwagen 7A in Stockholm. And the man in question was, of course, Raoul Wallenberg. So how did this come about then? After the German occupation of Hungary in March 1944, Hungary became War Refugees Board's first big mission. But the new American rescue mission was, of course, constrained by the fact that United States were, was part of the war. War Refugee Board decided to try to act through neutral states instead. When the deportations in Hungary then started in the middle of May 1944, War Refugee Board sent a telegram to American legations in five neutral European countries. Local American legations were asked to try to convince the neutral governments to extend their diplomatic representations in Budapest to pursue a mission financed by the Americans. In Stockholm, the American legation was, by coincidence, located at Strandwagen 7A, the same building as the Swedish-Hungarian import firm where Raoul Wallenberg worked. During this spring of 1944, there had been a lot of discussions about rescue missions in Hungary in Jewish circles in Stockholm. And the discussions had been intense also in Raoul Wallenberg's office. Since his boss, the Hungarian Kalman Lauer, was of Jewish origin and had close relatives in Hungary whose life, lives were in danger. The idea to send Raoul to Budapest on a rescue mission had already been discussed. And Raoul, who had been to Budapest several times on business, had declared himself ready to go. So at Strandwagen 7A, it didn't take long for all those separate ideas on, on a Hungarian mission to become one. But wasn't Raoul Wallenberg a Swedish diplomat? What about the role of the Swedish foreign ministry then? Didn't Sweden have a plan of its own? I have read all correspondence between the foreign ministry in Stockholm and the Swedish legation in, in Budapest concerning rescue work in Hungary during the spring of 1944. There were a lot of diplo different diplomatic rescue efforts, but there was actually no plan for such a huge Swedish government initiative, not until the Americans introduced their idea. In the beginning of 1944, the American envoy in Stockholm, Herschel Johnson, suggested to the Swedish foreign ministry, as requested, that Sweden extend its representation in Budapest for an American mission. And a few days later, he presented his candidate. The name was Raoul Wallenberg. Sweden, desperate to please the Western allies, said yes, 
both to the idea and to the proposed candidate. Sweden was in fact the only one of those five neutral countries that agreed to collaborate in the American mission. Within a week, everything was settled. Raoul Wallenberg was to go to Budapest on a Swedish-Hungarian-American mission led and financed by the American. Not so much led, honestly, but financed. Sweden agreed to appoint him secretary at the Swedish legation and to pay his salary. Officially, the whole operation would be presented as a Swedish humanitarian diplomatic effort. He arrived, Raoul Wallenberg, to the Swedish legation the, in Budapest the 9th of July, 1944. And that happened to be two days after a very crucial decision had been made regarding the destiny of the Budapest Jews. Hungarian regent Miklos Horthy was still formally in place. But after the German occupation in March, Hungary had in reality been led by a Hungarian puppet government. Up until now, Miklos Horthy had tried to distance himself from all decision making. But in the beginning of July, he had finally decided to intervene. And he managed to force the Germans, Hungarian puppet government to stop the deportations. More than 400,000 Jews had been deported during the last seven weeks. As of now, only the Jews of Budapest remained around 200,000. So you might say that Raoul Wallenberg happened to arrive in Budapest during a period of relative calm. The deportations were halted, but still no one dared to feel safe. Within days, rumors started circulating about the dates for when the deportations would resume. So what did he do arriving into this situation? The most exaggerated tales about Raoul Wallenberg in Budapest leave you with a Hollywood-like impression, a Bruce Willis kind of hero that came from nowhere, all alone and rescued tens of thousands of Jews. Of course, that is not even close to the true story, which is that Raoul Wallenberg was just one of many actors in the dramatic situation in Budapest that autumn. So by focusing on what Raoul Wallenberg did, I don't mean to downplay the actions of other neutral diplomats like the Swede Per Anger, the Swiss diplomat Karl Lutz, and Angelo Rotta, the envoy of the Vatican State. Nor do I want to downplay the importance of the Red Cross, the Jewish Council, or the Hungarian resistance movement. A lot was also done in collaboration with, for instance, all neutral states working together but as the Swedish first secretary in Budapest at the time, Per Anger, later stated, behind these joint actions by the neutral countries, you almost always found the mind and the pen of Raoul Wallenberg. I started out by listing all the knots. But more important for the end result is, of course, who Raoul Wallenberg really was. I would describe him as a young and very energetic young man with an unusual creative and artistic talent, a man who in the army and in his business had demonstrated great talent for leadership, organization, and smart negotiations, a talkative, nearly 
tiring talkative person with a remarkable inner driving force. He, as I told earlier, as I said earlier, he preferred American optimists to what he viewed as the innate Swedish pessimism. His attitude was by now, nothing is impossible. And he was not a diplomat, which was a real asset in Budapest this autumn. Raoul Wallenberg was definitely more prepared to choose rule-breaking strategies when necessary than most of the diplomats. And the strategy Raoul Wallenberg chose was action, not only beautiful words. I would like to highlight two of his actions in Budapest this autumn, the Swedish Schutzpass and the bureaucracy of the rescue mission, which also is the, the organization of the international ghetto. It has often been said that Raoul Wallenberg was the one inventing the creative protective papers that saved so many lives of Hungarian Jews this autumn, like Schutzpass, Schutzbrief, and other similar papers that seemed official but were not. That is actually not true. The original idea came from the Swiss Karl Lutz, the Swiss diplomat. He created his so-called emigration certificates to protect Hungarian Jews who had applied for emigration to Palestine. Raoul Wallenberg was actually not even first at the Swedish legation with this idea. But at the end of July 1944, the Germans and the Hungarians had got fed up with all those strange protective papers that flooded Budapest, designating people as Swedish or Swiss without a single sign that they had even visited either country. <laughs> so the rules were changed. Jews who were supposed to be under the protection of a neutral country must now show real passports with photos and stamps and official signatures. But Sweden couldn't start handing out citizenships right and left without risking the status of all Swedish citizenships. Therefore, the new documents had to be fake as well. And that was one of Raoul Wallenberg's first tasks, to create that document. His artistic talent and creativity triumphed with the new Schutzpass. This was not an official passport either, but a pretend one. And with its credible appearance, it trumped all other fake official protective papers in Budapest that autumn. Quite soon, though, Raoul Wallenberg realized that the main purpose with these Schutzpasses could not be to transfer thousands of Hungarian Jews to Sweden. That was far too dangerous and far too expensive. Instead, he decided that the best thing to do was to concentrate on protecting them on site. So very few of the Jews Raoul Wallenberg saved in Hungary ever reached Sweden. To those who were here before, I have already showed you this particular passport that has been hanging, the passport I just showed, that has been hanging in a frame on the wall of Raoul Wallenberg's sister's house in, outside Stockholm in Sweden. Judith Kopstein, 14 years old. I tried unsuccessfully during my research to find her. What happened to that 14-year-old girl that Raoul Wallenberg may have saved with her passport? But it wasn't until after my book was published that I finally, through an unimaginable series of coincidences that I told those of you who were here earlier, 
but I wanted to show all of you. I found her in Canada, in Winnipeg. Judith, now married Weizmann, even visited Sweden in 2014. I didn't have the picture of them. I'm very sorry about that. She even visited Sweden in 2014, and I managed to take, bring her to Nina's house in outside Stockholm and show her the shoots pass on the wall. She visited Sweden just a few months before she passed away. Okay, that was the Schutzpass. Then I would like to continue with Wallenberg's tremendous organizational skills. Because as soon as he arrived in Budapest, he began developing his own organization at the legation, the humanitarian department. His staff grew so quickly that he soon had to move out of the Swedish legation to separate offices. Wallenberg recruited nearly all his staff among the Hungarian Jews who received Swedish protective papers. In the end of 1944, his, the staff amounted to 350 persons working in a well-functioning, business-like organization. And that was really needed. In October, the Hungarian, Hungarian Nazi party, the Arrow Cross, took power after a coup uh, planned by the Germans. After that, all hell broke loose in Budapest. Briefly, you could say that for a period that had been continuing threats towards the persecuted Hungarian Jews, but not much action. That changed on the 15th of October, 1944. After that, the threats were no longer idle, but were followed up by terrible acts of violence. The new Arrow Cross government also decided to move all Budapest Jews into two ghettos. The majority of the persecuted Jews were displaced to a central ghetto in the eastern part of Budapest, that is, of course, Pest. But tough negotiations <coughs> in which Wallenberg was involved led to all 35,000 Jews protected by neutral countries being moved to a special international ghetto further north. Raoul Wallenberg's organization established a new headquarter and five offices in Pest. Soon they had more than 30 buildings to manage in the international ghetto and at least 10,000 people to provide with food and other necessities daily. They handled everything, heating, broken windows, cooking for 1,500 people at the time, deliveries from several food supplies. Raoul and his humanitarian department even started a Swedish hospital in the international ghetto with some 40 doctors. All the expenses were paid for by the War Refugee Board, who got 90% of their financing from American Jewish organizations. Raoul Wallenberg even had a special security service called the Schutzlings Protocol, with around 20 persons on call 24 hours a day ready to spring into action whenever someone called in reporting an assault. Sometimes Wallaby showed up personally when the alarm came, but more often he sent his patrols. And these Schutzlings protocol patrols were important in November when the German master of deportation, Adolf Eichmann, had returned to Budapest and started his cruel death marches towards the Austrian border. Altogether, more than 35,000 people were deported on foot, the 200 kilometers to Hegir Shalom at the Austrian border, many of them dying from hunger, cold, and fatigue during the walk. 
Raoul Wallenberg's Schutzlings Protocol patrols managed to save at least 2,000 people from these marches and from attacks in the streets. It is impossible to give an exact figure for the number of Hungarian Jews that had Raoul Wallenberg to thank for their lives, directly or indirectly. And as I said before, Raoul Wallenberg was just one of many actors in the rescue efforts in Budapest 1944. His personal contribution is hard to precise in numbers. Some were saved in direct actions, some with his Schutzpasses and his food deliveries, some as a result of his negotiations. But it is clear that his personality and his supreme sense of organization was the decisive engine behind much of what happened and what led to tens of thousands of Jews in Budapest being saved from the Holocaust. According to some sources, towards the end, the bare mentioning of Raoul, the name Raoul Wallenberg was sometimes enough to save people. So what can we learn from this today? Confronted as we are now with the perhaps largest, ref not perhaps, the largest refugee crisis since World War II, with at least four million Syrians fleeing their country. Parallels are, of course, tempting, but very difficult to draw, uh, because the situation is so different and the, the challenges we face today mostly of another kind, of course, than 1945 or 44. But still, I think there is one general lesson to be drawn. When tens of thousands of people are fleeing from absolute evil, political declarations and emotional speeches are needed, but never enough, no matter how beautifully worded they are. What is needed is action. You have to organize and deliver. The ironic tragedy of this story is that this is exactly what was lacking when Raoul Wallenberg in January 1945 became a victim himself of another awful human rights violation. When the Soviet army reached Budapest, Wallenberg voluntarily crossed the front to meet the Red, meet the Red Army and discuss a collaboration. But the Soviets answered by arresting him and he ended up imprisoned in Moscow. In the third part of my book, I depict this long post-war drama that followed. It resembles a real Cold War thriller, and it is a heartbreaking story. I know that because it put me to tears while I wrote it. Because what unfolds here is a tragedy filled with obvious lies and humanitarian abuse by the Soviet-Russian side, as well as naive political demeanor and astonishing diplomatic failures on the Swedish side. And stuck in the middle, you have Raoul Wallenberg's poor, suffering family. So I would like to conclude this speech by giving you an overview of the post-war drama and the tragic family story in Sweden referred to as the Raoul Wallenberg case. To start with, with, it is appropriate to divide this Raoul Wallenberg case into two principal periods. One, the phase when the Soviet Union told the truth about Raoul Wallenberg. Second, the phase when the Soviet Union excelled in lying about the missing Swedish diplomat. The truth period was about a month long, from January to February 1945. 
the lying phase now amounts to more than 70 years. Phase one. Believe it or not, but in the beginning there was actually normal diplomatic correspondence between Sweden and the Soviet Union concerning Raoul Wallenberg's whereabouts. When the Red Army approached Budapest, the Swedish envoy in Moscow, Staffan Söderblom, was instructed to ask the Soviet Foreign Ministry for protection for the Swedish Budapest diplomats. The second Ukrainian army in Budapest received that order, and when Raoul Wallenberg initiated contact with them on the 13th of January 1945, they simply reported it back home. A certain Wallenberg had voluntarily crossed the front and was now under Soviet protection. The message was forwarded to the Swedish envoy and later on, or one day later, to the foreign ministry in Stockholm. And in Stockholm, the reaction was, oh, wonderful, at least one of the Swedish uh, diplomats in Budapest is safe. Wallenberg's first contact with the Soviet commanders were also quite friendly. He even had dinner with the officer who first handled his request. They toasted each other and gave speeches. He spent several days walking around different army units, his goal being to reach, reach the highest command, General Rodion Malinowski, further east in Hungary. Raoul Wallenberg even returned to Budapest to get his things before he disappeared. After this, there was a sudden change in climate. An order for his arrest was issued in Moscow, signed by Deputy Defense Minister Bulganin, but it turned out later originally issued by Joseph Stalin. Raoul Wallenberg was transported by train with his driver Wilmos Langfelter all the way to Moscow without Sweden raising any further questions about him. And in February 6, 1945, Raoul Wallenberg was registered as a prisoner at the Lubyanka prison in central Moscow. So far, the Swedish lack of rea reaction was, of course, stupid, but maybe understandable. In Stockholm at this point, everyone was more anxious about the Budapest diplomats that had not been heard from. Still, a single formal diplomatic note about Wallenberg during this period of truth might have changed the outcome. By the end of February, it was already too late. Too late for that kind of normal diplomatic communication. The everlasting Soviet period of disinformation campaigns and lies had then already begun. But why was he arrested in the first place? I would like to claim that it would have been strange indeed if they had not arrested him. Not because Raoul Wallenberg was a criminal, but because Joseph Stalin was. You don't have to read very much about conspiracy theories in Stalin's Soviet Union during this last year of the war in order to understand that Raoul Wallenberg unfortunately was naive to think that the Russian would applaud his actions instead of challenging them. Swedish diplomats in Budapest seem to have been unaware of this, but the diplomatic climate between the Soviet Union and the United States had by that time reached a severe chill foreboding the Cold War. That the organization Raoul Wallenberg worked for was American 
was hardly appreciated in the Kremlin, to say the least, despite the two countries being on the same side in the war. And Soviet suspicions were likely to have increased with the question marks that uh, appeared in the wake of Raoul Wallenberg's own creative courage. Because Raoul Wallenberg had no problem dealing with the devil if that was the price he had to pay to save yet another human life or more. And in his calendar and address book were many names of high up arrow crossers and Nazis like Adolf Eichmann. Three telephone numbers to add Adolf Eichmann. But the positive purpose behind these kind of Nazi contacts was hardly the first thing that came to mind for the officers in the Soviet counter-espionage. We know today that Raoul Wallemey was alive in Soviet prisons for at least two and a half years. So the great puzzle in the tragedy is not why he was seized, but why the Russians did not let him go. For this, unfortunately, the Swedish government have a great deal of responsibility. And I don't hesitate to call what later happened the Swedish betrayal of Raoul Wallenberg. The change in the Soviet messages from truth to lies first took shape of rumors spread at diplomatic parties and via Soviet-controlled radio stations. The new, this new information that was spread in February, March 1945 was simply the obvious as of what had been said before. Now it was claimed that Raoul Wallenberg had disappeared in Budapest and most likely died in an accident or something. The first Swedish, serious Swedish betrayal came right away. Because the first people to swallow this malicious Soviet disinformation were the Swedish diplomats, both those on their way back from Budapest and those in Moscow with one important exception, Per Anger, Wallenberg's colleague in Budapest. But unfortunately, nobody listened to him. He was too young, I think. Therefore, you might say that already in April 1945, this rumor was transformed into some kind of unofficial truth in the corridors of the foreign ministry in Stockholm. Raoul Wallenberg was most certainly dead. This laid a tragic foundation for all the missed opportunities that later emerged. It didn't exactly help that the Swedish post-war foreign policy toward the Soviet Union could be summarized as attempting to keep Stalin in a good mood, out of fear of drastic and more violent Soviet actions towards Sweden. Addressing the Raoul Wallenberg case was not seen as a uh, as a way to keep relations smooth and friendly with the Soviet Union, which unfortunately, in the eyes of the social democratic government at the time, became one very strong reason for not doing it. The most important of the missed opportunities that followed is the Soviet initiative toward a prisoner ex exchange at the end of 1945. What makes this uh, strategic move even more interesting is that Moscow at the same time pursued negotiations regarding an exchange of two imprisoned Swiss diplomats, Harald Feller and Max Meyer, whose order of arrest happened to be issued the same day as Raoul Wallenberg. 
The negotiations with the Swiss succeeded. Some Soviet citizens imprisoned in Switzerland were exchanged for the two Swiss diplomats who regained their freedom. The parallel Swedish case involving Raoul Wallenberg failed. So successful had the disinformation campaign been that the Swedish ambassador in Moscow, Staffan Söderblom, instead of discussing exchanges, privately asked his counterpart at the Soviet Foreign Ministry to issue a statement indicating that Raoul Wallenberg was dead. If for no other reason than to relieve Raoul Wallenberg's mother from her false hopes. In quotation, false hopes. At that time, Raoul was of course alive in the Lefort of a prison, but that scenario didn't seem to have occurred to Staffan Söderblom. Half a year later, Wallenberg was still alive in the same freezing cold prison. Then in June 1946, Söderblom, Staffan Söderblom managed to be one of extremely few foreign diplomats who was granted an audience with Stalin himself. Unfortunately, Söderblom chose the same strategy during this historic meeting, reassuring Stalin that he personally was convinced that, quote, Wallenberg had fallen victim to an accident or an assailant, end of quote. Finally, in the summer of 1947, Sweden managed to get an official answer out of the Kremlin regarding the whereabouts of Raoul Wallenberg. Not surprisingly, it was a lie. Raoul had, in fact, been in prison for two and a half years, and his name had already caused trouble at the Politburo level in the Soviet Union. But the official message to Sweden in 1947 read that Wallenberg was, quote, not to be found in the Soviet Union, and he is unknown to us, end of quote. Sweden was confronted with a humiliating Soviet lie the Swedish government, who couldn't imagine lies on such a high political level, believed every word. Sweden resigned from pursuing the matter without once officially having demanded the release of Raoul Wallenberg. This betrayal went on and on. Year after year, Raoul Wallenberg's family fought alone for the truth, repeatedly and brutally thrown between hope and despair. And my research in this book also involves that side of the drama. I have read all of Raoul's stepfather, Fredrik von Dardel's extensive and immensely moving diaries and their attachments with incoming letters and copies of outgoing letters. One example is this letter, dated in April 1956. I will give you the background to this letter. Since 1947, then, the, the family had been living with the Soviet lie that Raoul had not been seen and was not known in the Soviet Union. But in 1955, suddenly thousands of German prisoners of war were sent back home from the Soviet Union. The Swedish Foreign Ministry sent some officials to Germany to meet with those prisoners of war, and quite a few of those prisoners could report that they had been in contact with a Swedish prisoner called Raoul Wallenberg. In October 1955, 
foreign ministry staff even managed to interview Gustav Richter, Raoul Wallenberg's first cellmate in Lubyanka. Intense information gathering began in Sweden, by Sweden maybe. And by coincidence, the Swedish prime minister was scheduled for a first official visit in Moscow on Easter 1956. He, brought, he now brought all the new evidence with him, and suddenly the Swedish words had taken on some significance. The prime minister was even convinced that he would bring Raoul Wallenberg back to Sweden at this point. So were Wallenberg's mother and stepfather. They wrote a letter to Raoul, which they asked the prime minister to bring with him to Moscow. Our dear beloved Raoul, after many years of misery and endless longing for you, we have now come so far that the leaders of our government, Prime Minister Elander and Minister Hedlund, are traveling to Moscow to finally see to it that you are allowed to return home. May they succeed and may your suffering now be at an end. We have never given up hope that we would see you again, although to our great sorrow, all our efforts to get in contact, contact with you thus far have failed. This is not a sentimental letter, rather it is informative and instructive for the now 43-year-old son to read before his return to Sweden. For instance, they warned Raoul, warned Raoul of the journalists that accompanied the Prime Minister to Moscow. We ask you, do not allow them to interview you. You should say that you must first give a report to the Foreign Ministry and that you also need to rest and recuperate. There is a room here waiting for you when you return with the Prime Minister. And that sentence was actually the title for the Swedish edition of this book. But the Prime Minister didn't return with Raoul Wallenberg. The only result he got, got from this effort was that the lies from the Soviet side changed. Faced with so much evidence, the Kremlin had to do something. Soviet officials were given the order to come up with something that could pass as a half-truth a possible disease or something. The first suggestion was to tell the Swedes that Wallenberg had died of pneumonia in the Lefort of a prison the summer of 47. One year later, the official response to Sweden was yet another. The Soviets now admitted that Raoul Wallenberg had in fact been imprisoned in the Soviet Union, but now they claimed that he unfortunately died of heart attack in his cell in the Lubyanka prison, the 17th of July, 1947. Even today, this is the official Russian version. We all know it is a lie. So to conclude, I want to say that the ironic tragedy of this story is the obvious. There was simply never a Raoul Wallenberg for Wallenberg himself. Thank you for listening. Any questions? <laughs> you said that your, your Swedish edition of this book, uh, of your book, is longer than your American version. Um, what did you cut out? <laughs> uh, 
I cut up some really interesting Swedish political history from the 1920s that you will miss a lot. Uh, then I cut out uh, the footnotes. But they still exist uh, on the web. So we decided, because there are so, so many Swedish references, and the, I, in the Swedish book I, I, I had 1,705 footnotes. Because I wanted, since there are so many myths on Raoul Wallenberg, I wanted every fact to be linked to a footnote. So do I claim he w went in a blue car? The blue car is in a footnote. And, uh, but those footnotes you find on the web. And then we have diminished some of the histories uh, a little. But you, you will find a lot of details. <laughs> yes? So do we actually have any information now of what happened to him? We don't have uh, proofs that, are, uh, that uh, explain what happened beyond all doubt. So uh, what we can say, given what we know about the, the preparations for the official Soviet life at 57, we can be sure that it is a lie. We also know one of the greatest uh, um, advances in the Raoul Wallenberg case happened a few years ago when the, the KGB archivists, the FSB archivists, admitted in a, a letter to some uh, American researchers that uh, during uh, interrogation that took place after the official death date, the 17th of July 1947, during interrogation that took place the 22nd and the 23rd, there was a certain prisoner called prisoner number seven, kept anonymous in the, the registration, registration lists, that, he, that they believed that this prisoner most certainly was Raoul Wallenberg. And having said that, they have unofficially declared that the, official, the still official Russian, it's very difficult with ru Russian truth, it's a very special area, <laughs> but they, they, have a, they are claiming thus that the Russian official truth most certainly is wrong. I have tried to press them on this, uh, that they contradict each other. Uh, but the, the only answer I've gotten is that they cannot prove that prisoner number seven was Raoul Wallenberg. But he most certainly was. So he didn't die the 17th of July. He did most for certain not die a natural death. So uh, what we can say is that the, the most uh, advanced theory uh, that could be presented is that he was executed. Uh, I don't think he lived so long after July 1947. For one reason or the other, they are keeping their eyes on this year. Uh, and I don't think he was alive at 1956 when the prime minister came to, uh, to meet with Khrushchev in Moscow. Since this this it happened to happen just after the 20th Party Congress when Khrushchev distanced himself from Stalin and which were followed by uh, the release of nearly a huge amount of the pol political refugees at the time. It would have been a very easy thing for Khrushchev to ease the relation with Sweden and just let him go. And he would have no problem with it. He could just accuse Stalin and Nabakumov for the death. So sometimes there, my guess is uh, end of summer 47, but this is a tragedy. Nina is uh, now 95 years old. She's still alive in Stockholm, and I can tell you, I met her two weeks ago. She's still 
waiting for an explanation what happened to Raoul. And she cannot understand why they hesitate. And she, she as, is as convinced as I am and all of us who are into this area that the truth is buried in the Russian archives. Not in a single paper, but in keeping doing the puzzle, you could really answer the question. Yes? So what was it that the Russians wanted to accomplish by taking uh, I, I think they, they were very suspicious on Ralph Wallenberg, both because of this American mission. There was this cold, the Cold War climate between Soviet Union and the United States had already began. began. And one of the reasons why uh, the Soviet Union was suspicious toward uh, United States at this point was the, the repeated, um, uh, what you say, is repeated uh, uh, secret uh, peace negotiations between the German opposition and the Western allies. He was really afraid that Soviet Union would be kept out, that they would arrive to a separate peace with Germany, with the, which Stalin was at the part of. And one and the Stalin linked these separate peace negotiations with the War Refugee Board. He found that the, the kind of things that they did was so, had something to do with these separate peace uh, ambitions. But more so, more, even more was uh, negative for Ralph Wallenberg when it came to the separate peace negotiations because his father's cousins, Jakob and Marcus Wallenberg, the bank directors, had been involved in those as secret messengers between German opposition and the Western Allies in Britain. Marcus Wallenberg was a lot present in, in Great Britain during the war, doing negotiations for the Swedish government in trade. And his, his brother, Jakob, was in uh, Germany with the same mission. They had secret uh, messages being passed through there. And the Soviet intelligence knew of that. So the Wallenberg name was linked to those. So I think they, uh, Stalin felt that they had to taken a really big one here, but that's what we know. What we know for sure is only there's no interrogation protocols, uh, no uh, uh, no uh, records of what he, he was accused of. He was never prosecuted, never trial. Uh, so the only thing we know of what he was accused of is what he told his cellmates, those coming back from Germany. Uh, and in the first uh, interrogation, he was accused of being part of this capitalist family. The second uh, being a spy. So, long answer, sorry. <laughs> More questions? Um, the book Letters and Dispatches, I think, is such a lovely accompaniment to your book. Um, I know you've quoted a lot of those correspondences between um, Raoul and his grandfather. Yes, yes, yes. Do you see all the originals and where are they? Yeah, from? I found the originals. Uh, they are spread, but the, uh, the cu cousin of uh, Raoul Wallenberg uh, has the original letter. So I was in his home in Uppsala and, and took... So this is the original letter uh, that is, has been photographed, or I took the photo myself. But they are also published in books, those letters, but they are often shortened. So we need to find the originals.